Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My name's Nicole Bennett, and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We are one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 13 for 2022. Today, I'm honoured to be joined by an historian. Dr. Margaret Cook is a history lecturer at the University of Sunshine Coast, a research fellow at Griffith University, and holds honorary research fellow positions at La Trobe University and University of Queensland. Margaret has been a freelance historian for many years, working in the heritage, museum, government and private sectors, and publishing on numerous topics. She holds a PhD in history from the University of Queensland, and her most recent research interests include natural disasters, rivers, water politics and environmental history. Margaret's recent publications are A River with a City Problem, A History of Brisbane Floods, an edited collection with Scott McKinnon called Disasters in Australia and New Zealand, Historical Approaches to Understanding Catastrophe, and a co-authored book called Cities in a Sunburnt Country, Water and the Making of Urban Australia. In 2022, Margaret was awarded the John and Ruth Kerr Medal of Distinction for Excellence in Historiography, Historical Research and Writing. I'm really honoured to have you join me on the podcast today, Margaret. Thank you so much for agreeing. How are you today? I'm well and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. That's awesome. I uh, I came across you, uh, I had Martin Rushani Zamari join me on the podcast in April where he gave us a bit of a, a flooding 101 lesson uh, and he referenced you numerous times through that podcast episode, uh, your research, your publications and a couple of the standouts in that conversation for him was about how our urban settlements are built on floodplains um, due to access to water for agriculture and farming, and how communities of today expect that engineering should be able to solve many of the threats of natural disasters. But he sort of said that's simply not possible in many circumstances. So today I'd really love to build on that discussion I had with Martin and take a deep dive into your publications and your passions and I guess to really find out what lessons we can take from history to, to shape sustainable and resilient communities. How does that sound? Sounds fantastic. Awesome. Okay. N not, not a big ask. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought maybe we could start um, with you to provide a bit of an overview of your publications, the books I've mentioned, what they are and what they cover. Okay. Um, well, I'm really interested in floods. I'm an environmental historian and what environmental historians look at is the relationship between humans and place. And sometimes in that, in that interconnection, you can tell stories about places that you might not think about if you look at it a different way. And floods um, are particularly interesting because they're that moment of crisis. You know, you know in your own life when something goes wrong, it really tests you. You find out what your strengths and weaknesses are. You find out what you're capable of or probably not so good at. 
It's exactly the same with floods in society. We work out who's got power, who doesn't have power, what are the decisions that have been made in the past that will shape our current situation and our future. And those tensions are always there, but in the moment of flood, I think they're really, really apparent. And so that's a really interesting moment as an historian to start thinking about urban design and how we live in our cities. Yeah, absolutely. And so what are the books? Could you sort of go into a little bit around why you've covered each of the the different books? Yeah, sure. So the first one was the River with the City Problem. And that was a way of reframing the whole settlement of Brisbane. So we often talk about rivers being, a, um, you know, floods being the problem. Well, they're yeah. not. The problem is, is that we built on that floodplain. And yeah. so that was really sort of really thinking about that and how we've over-relied on dams. And we keep getting floods and we'll continue to get floods. Yet we sort of pretend in Brisbane, although it's called the River City, that we won't get these floods. So, so then I worked with other historians to look at some of the other disasters because, you know, we do floods, but down south they're very good at uh, bushfires. Up north they're great at cyclones. So I put together a team with Scott McKinnon and together we got these collected chapters of different ways of looking at disasters to see what the common threads are that we can learn from looking at all those different disasters. And then the water book that I've just done, Cities in a Sunburnt Country with a group of people, all historians as well, we're looking at the other side of that coin of drought and water supply because we are the land of drought and flood. And so we were looking at that one about how our cities have to grow and still cope with uh, sewage issues and water supply issues and so on. And we've got these really old engineering structures that may not be up to the task. And how do we start thinking about being more conscious of our water, recycling a lot more, looking at those decisions that will take us into the 20, 22nd century uh, with our 19th century plumbing. So that's a way of sort of looking at how we live in an urban environment that's very dry most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's interesting. So you've covered three books and they're all very much around those natural disasters. I'm really interested to find out what's inspired you to research so deeply into natural disasters. I think um, critical to all of those is water. I think uh, I read really early on in my research that you can't really understand uh, Australia without thinking about water and water has been so important. It's the reason we've settled our cities on rivers. We were able to navigate with that. That's always been our water supply. So um, I think the theme has actually been water and how we've used it. And, and that um, I think it's probably more interesting to look at the extremes of either of those, and that's the disaster spectrum of drought or flood. Um, and then some of the issues are in the, in the middle, but that's the really the great appeal of the disasters of um, those moments of critical decision-making. Yeah, absolutely. And so why do you think it's important that we understand and learn from history? I think that we've done so much science and we've done so much engineering, we've thought about planning and so on, but often it's the human dimension that's left out of these decisions. And that's not to disparage the work of all of my colleagues in those other disciplines, but I think floods um, is very much underpinned by human behaviour. And we don't really understand floods. You know, in the last flood, even the ones we had in February 2022, everyone's going, oh, they're unprecedented. We didn't know this would happen. I didn't know this was a floodplain. I didn't think we'd been flood, it would be flooded. Wyvernhoe's supposed to stop this. And there's all these myths just swirling around. And that's actually about cultural dimensions. 
and that's about political decisions and it's about how we actually think and our education levels about the environment and our understanding of risk and so on. And I don't think you can understand floods unless you think about those dimensions. A hydrologist also told me really early on in my research that um, floods are actually psychological. You have to think about the psychology of floods as well. Why do people stay? Why do people build there? Why don't people evacuate? And I think that's deeply rooted in some of the myths and stories we tell ourselves. And as a historian, I'm a um, storyteller. So that's my opportunity to try and tell some of those stories as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like you've got a real, you're sort of driven by the history and then that storytelling to kind of piece them together to understand, yeah, why why we've sort of made certain decisions and why the world is the way it is around us. And I think history and science becomes more accessible in a story format. I think, you know, as children, we listen to fairy tales and we, we you know, stories, um, storytelling is in a big part of every culture all over the world and has been for centuries. So I think storytelling sometimes can make those um, probably less palatable stories and science more accessible. So that's what I try and do is get try and get the science right by working with great scientists, but trying to translate it into a form that everybody can understand. Yeah, I love that. Such a powerful message. Okay, so going back to human behaviour, what would you say from your your research and your publications are the key learnings about human behaviour, especially during natural disasters? One of the things I don't think we understand necessarily is how rivers work. Um, and that might sound really crazy, but um, particularly in southeast Queensland, our river systems are so interconnected. The, the rain starts in the headwaters, a long way away from um, the, the mouth, 300 kilometres away from the mouth, and the Sunshine Coast waters and the Gold Coast waters all play a part of that system. And I don't think we totally understand that. The Brisbane River system alone has 22 creeks in it as well. And I, um, I think um, what I found is that people don't actually think about geography enough. They don't think about the topography. They don't think about how those relationships of water work and how if the water falls downstream of a dam, in the case of Wyvernhoe Dam, there's not a lot we can do to prevent the flooding. So the one thing I did discover is that people have put so much faith in those dams and engineers have put a lot of faith and town planners have put a lot of faith in those dams. And if the rain falls in the right place at the right time, upstream of those dams, Somerset Dam and Wyvernhoe Dam can do a lot of good. They can actually reduce the flood heights. But if it falls downstream, as it did in 1974 and 2022, there's not a lot we can do. And so I think that's one of the big educational finds I had, that people don't really understand that. They also don't understand that you can have the sa same size flood twice in the same year, that, you know, we have this sort of long-held misunderstanding of the, the term one in 100. And so, you know, there genuinely is a feeling that if we've had a big flood, we can wait another 99 years for the next one. Um, I wrote an article about that, that, you know, they can come more frequently than that. I wrote in the conversation that no two floods are the same because just because we've had one flood in, in February 2022, we can have another one. In fact, in 1893, we had the second biggest recorded flood in history and two weeks later we had the third biggest. Eight metres they both were. I mean, they're astonishingly high floods. 
and we hadn't even dried out from the first one. So, you know, we're wrong to think that we can we can relax when we've had a flood. But often we do. We sort of think, oh, well, that's done. Now we'll – and people become complacent very, very fast and people forget really quickly. And part of that is because we move on to drought. We go into that next cycle. Sometimes it's just because the focus is on recovery. Quick, 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 let's get on with it. Let's get cleaned up. Let's get back to business as usual. And we don't always take the time to have the conversation that you and I are having about, well, what, what have we learned? What could we do differently? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's been a different period at the moment because it feels like it hasn't stopped raining since yes. since the floods, you know. <laughs> so I think it is still in people's minds, but you're so right. As soon as it does dry out and as soon as we sort of have the opposite issue where, you know, we've got bushfires back or, you know, whatever the next kind of disaster is, our memories are short. And I think the other thing Martin mentioned was in the podcast was that you know, a lot of people weren't here or didn't live in Brisbane during the 2011 flood. So they may have seen it on TV, but may not have fully understood where it happened or that their house was exposed. So it's sort of that that just basic understanding of where floods occur within cities that's, yeah. you know, not, not fully known by people. Yeah, that's a huge factor because you think how fast um, South East Queensland's growing. There is so many people who were not here in 2011 so they don't have that memory. And also people were flooded in 2011 that weren't flooded in 2022. And there were a lot of people flooded in 2022 that weren't flooded in 2011 because of the creek factor particularly. So sometimes that knowledge doesn't help a lot, but it, it's it's better than none, isn't it? It is. You're so right. It's like, no, no, the flood only goes to this height. Yeah. It's like, you know, um, but that, that's certainly not the case. And I, and I you know, in other work that I do around climate change, we know that these disasters of all forms will only get more severe, more frequent uh, and, you know, more unpredictable. And I think climate change is really important and I'm glad you mentioned it because um, they are going to be bigger. They are. We probably won't get the smaller floods because it's going to be drier. So the soils and so on might be able to absorb some of those. But when we do get floods, they are more likely to be bigger. So we need to be really careful about saying, oh, it only came to this height because next time that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I would be keen to understand from you around what advice you would give to uh, to planners and engineers and decision makers um, and about how we can learn from history. So, you know, with, with with all of what you've found, uh, I mean, you've pulled out some of the, the key learnings about human behaviour, but what can our, our city shapers and urban thinkers really take from the lessons of history to to ensure that our, our strategies and our plans into the future actually improve, you know, our, our level of vulnerability rather than kind of make it worse? Yeah. Some of the problems we face are, of course, legacy issues because we've built in places that we probably shouldn't have built in. But buyback schemes do actually work, you know, and there have been examples where they've been used. Um, we talk about Grantham up in the Lockyer Valley where we moved the whole town and that was a great success in 2022. Now, we don't have to do it in that, uh, that to that extent, but we now know from town planning and science and history where the most vulnerable places are. So we could start moving people gradually. Um, it doesn't have to be a whole suburb. It could just be individual houses. And we've done that after the 74 floods and 2011 floods. So that's a really good, important town planning strategy. The other thing is we just really need to stop making it worse. You know, when you drive around southeast Queensland, you, you know these pockets 
and yet you see more building going into them. And you don't have to actually be flooded to be affected by floods. You can be trapped. So you can be stuck on the sixth floor of a building that your lift doesn't work in and you're really equally at, at risk, really, because you can't get food and you can't get out. You can be in a, in a building where you're completely cut off by the roads because the roads are built at a one in 50. So we are actually increasing our level of vulnerability. We also have discovered through some of our floods that we have systems that don't really work. Rockley markets where we get lots of our food from go underwater really quickly. So, you know, quite quickly we don't get food to our shopping centres. And that's, you know, that's serious. Our water supply got um, can be a risk sometimes. So as urban planners, we really need to think about, at a very basic level, humans need food, water and shelter and our floods compromise that. So we need to think really at basic level of how can we make ourselves more resilient? We talk about resilience, but resilience tends, tends to be in terms of let's just get back and do it again. Resilience actually means making changes, um, brave changes in some cases, um, about how we actually live in southeast Queensland. Because as you say, with climate change, floods are going to be more frequent. So it's not like it's a problem that we can just ignore. It's not going away. Um, it's probably here in a, in a more aggressive form, and yet we're moving hundreds of people onto the floodplain. There are other areas in Brisbane we could think about developing. We do have this love of the single house on the single block. Maybe it's time to start thinking about, you know, maybe some higher density in the areas that don't flood. It doesn't have to be 10-storey buildings, but even, you know, low-pack buildings work. So we really probably need to rethink a bit about our urban development in terms of moving away from the floodplain, using the train systems and so on to, to move further out beyond those areas of risk. I'm interested in that, uh, the, the buyback schemes and, and then the other comment you made around, you know, human behaviour and human attachment. And, you know, I think one of the things that I grapple with is is the psychological, you know, impact of, you know, of town planners or decision makers kind of asking communities to, to move and leave their 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 country and, and and leave their existing homes and so you know how do you reconcile that and sort of what has history told us are, are sort of the right approaches to doing that um sometimes you can use natural processes so yeah tapping someone on the shoulder and making them leave can be problematic it happens all the time though people get moved from main roads or they were moved to build wyvernhoe dam so you know there's historical precedent that we are quite happy to move people but people, as you say, get very attached to their place. So the moment you can perhaps act is when they've put it on the market, when they're selling it and they've decided to move anyway, or it's a deceased estate or something like that. So you're not making people move. They've already decided to move or the decision's been made, but we've already had it flagged that these are the top 10 places in this suburb that we need to move. And so at a city council level or a state government level or some level, you say, right, when that house comes on the market or is available, maybe we can we can do that. Like a bit like the Christchurch red zone where we could zone areas that these are our most vulnerable, these are the places that ultimately we need to move, but let's do it when, when the time is right. Set up a fund so the money is there, a futures fund, um, so when that house becomes available, you can buy it. 
Because at the moment, it would be a fire sale if you moved in and made people move. And you have to give them a fair price because they've got to live somewhere. So I think we live in a capitalist society. Use it. Use those forces to improve our lot, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all the questions I had from you, Margaret. Is there any final thoughts or anything that we sort of haven't discussed that you'd like to share before we, we wrap it up? Look, I think there is hope. I think people can actually make decisions. I don't think it's all fatalistically disastrous. We actually are having some great conversations about floods and human behaviour can change. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. We didn't use to recycle. You know, it was everyone put everything in the same rubbish bin. We didn't recycle anything. And then we had that cultural shift where we started recycling paper and we started recycling glass. And, yes, there may be more to do in that space, but it's still a big step. You know, even in one generation, really, we've gone from throwing everything out to not throwing everything out. But perhaps the even bigger change that um, is more relevant to this conversation is you may remember the millennium drought before we had the 2011 flood and our dams were down to like 12%. It was just a disaster in the making. We were uh, had no sprinklers. We couldn't do any uh, use our hoses at all. We were forced to have four-minute showers. Remember all of that? We were given the four-minute yes, timer. Yes, the <laughs> egg timer. Yeah. But the thing was is we did it. Um, Southeast Queensland used to use 270 millilitres per person every single day. But when we brought in those restrictions and we changed our showers and we changed our washing machines to be more water efficient, we reduced it to 160 millilitres per person per day. That's phenomenal. We went, we became the most frugal water users in Australia. At the end of the other states didn't think we could do it, but we did. So the, my point is, is we still aren't using anything like that amount of water. We're actually only using about 180 millilitres each per person. And so we can change. So you sometimes I think you can be a bit fatalistic and say, oh, you know, we're going to get these more, we're going to get floods, climate change, they're going to make it worse, we're doomed. We're not. We really aren't. We can actually do some things and they can be small. But every little small thing we do can make a change. Even there's some great work going on in, in building design where we're starting to think about the building fabrics we use, the, if the design of our houses could be changed to let overland flow go underneath them, like the old Queenslanders used to do. So there are little changes we can make and then there are big changes, but there's a lot in between. So I don't want to leave us with no hope because I think I think we can do a lot. People are smart when they want to be. Yeah, absolutely. But we, we need that that kick along to say that this we do need that change. You know, it's it's the the opportunities out of time of crisis. But I, but I like it. Leaving it on a positive note that this is an opportunity as long as we see it like that yeah. and we rise to the challenge. But we can't be complacent. You know, we can't think that that flood's come and gone and we can sort of move on with our lives. I think we really do need to have these hard decisions and these discussions with our communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the word you just said that that's most important of all is community. Like I, I, think, I think there's a role for government to play because, you know, they are our leaders and they, they hold the, the money often. But community-driven movements are always very, very powerful. And I think there's a mood for change. I think there's people who are just going, we just can't keep doing this. We've been flooded three times. 
what are we going to do? So there maybe is a, more of an appetite to make some braver decisions because it's being driven at the community level. So I think um, your role in having these conversations is actually really important because if you can get some messages out about, hey, it's happened in the past, it will keep happening, but we don't have to just keep having the same disastrous outcome every single time. I mean, when, you know, after the 2011 flood, there were some great recommendations about changing some things and how the, the support work Give It came out. So we were able to create some um, community-driven projects to distribute what people needed. So after the 2011 flood, things improved, and after the 2022 floods, there'll be changes. So we do learn, just probably a little slower than I would like. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can both agree there. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, Margaret. It's been so great getting to know you and learning about the important work you're doing. Please keep up the research. Have you got anything in the pipeline? I'm, I'm looking at um, updating the River with a City problem to have a 2022 flood chapter. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I've really appreciated it. Thank you. It was great chatting to you. And thank you for tuning into the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review so that others find out about the show. You can follow us on Instagram, hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast and LinkedIn too. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.